Welcome to the Am I Called podcast. Am I Called is a ministry that exists to help men find their call and to help pastors find called men. For more information and resources, visit amicalled.com. Now, here's your host, Dave Harvey. Hi, folks. Welcome to the Am I Called podcast. I'm your host, Dave Harvey, and today's interview is actually by phone. It's outside of the studio, so it forms a bit of an experiment for us. But what's most important is not the tech support, but the people we invite and what they have to say. And today, David Pallison is joining us, and I can't describe for you how much I have anticipated speaking with Dave and doing this podcast. David is the executive director of CCEF, that's the Christian Counseling and Educational Foundation. But David's also known for different books he's written, his editorial work on the Journal of Biblical Counseling, and as a professor at my alma mater, Westminster Theological Seminary. David, it's great to have you with us. It is my pleasure, Dave. Thank you. You know, most people don't know this, but you were raised in Hawaii. What's it like to be raised in Hawaii? Well, for one thing, when they've done studies of primitive cultures and how much work you had to do to live, Hawaii was the easiest place in the world to live. It, uh, I think the Hawaiians had to do two to three hours of work a day. Uh, it's just a bountiful, beautiful, the oceans teemed, anything grows. Uh, so uh, it's a lovely place. Uh, I, I think one, one enduring effect of, of growing up there is that I, it's legit for me to wear sandals and an Aloha shirt. The, uh, I've never seen you in sandals and an Aloha shirt. Well, I'm wearing them right now. So they, <laughs> you know, on, the, on a podcast, you can. But, and you, uh, you enjoyed surfing too, right? I grew up surfing. Uh, my dad taught us, us to surf when we were young. Uh, my dad loved a goal. I remember there was one year that we went to the beach every single day in the calendar year, 365 straight days. Um, I mean, those are very fond memories. Uh, I, I think of Hawaii as home. Uh, at the same time, it's I've learned to love seasons. I, uh, I believe that God's call, uh, usually place is less significant by far than human need and the opportunities, the, the context in which God calls us to work. So uh, I'm glad to live on the, in the U.S. of A. on the mainland. Um, well, you are, now the, you are now the envy of all of our listeners, David. <laughs> Listen, one of the things that we do on this podcast is we, we just like to hear the stories of how people called or how God called people into ministry in the areas they serve. So why don't we just start with you telling us how you felt called by God to the world of counseling? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, I, I feel like God has given me a particularly powerful sense of personal calling. And in that, a sense that you might say all, all trajectories in my life all led to the direction where I finally found myself in God's mercy. Uh, as a non-Christian, I was a psychology major at Harvard, worked in uh, McLean Psychiatric Hospital for a number of years after college, was converted to faith in that context and converted in many ways by experiences of ultimately disillusionment with what the secular mental health world had to offer people who were deeply in trouble. Uh, the So my conversion actually 
grew out of wrestling of soul with uh, how much could we, what, what do people need and what's wrong with people and how do you help? And, and uh, in God's mercy, I came shortly after conversion. The man who led me to Christ was a student at Westminster. Uh, and I came down, was exposed to biblical counseling within the first month of being a, a new Christian and immediately started to see the implications for what it meant to care for people uh, in their troubles and ended up going to Westminster uh, while I was there, uh, did my major papers, kind of rethinking my old secular masters, uh, Abraham Maslow, Carl Jung, Carl Rogers, uh, Sigmund Freud, uh, the and became an intern at CCF while I was still a student and then from there was hired to, to teach, to counsel, to write and uh, so the, I see the, that calling issue in, in my particular case though I think there's a version of this in everyone it had continuity with who I was, had continuity where my interests had uh, lay uh, you know I wondered as a student should I be should I go to grad school and teach Old Testament? Should I work in a secular profession? Should I become a pastor? Should I become a missionary? And it was just clear that counseling was a place that had been a life interest as a non-Christian, and it was a place the church really had need. And uh, Did you choose Westminster because CCF was there and you were looking to sharpen and refine your counseling ministry, or were you thinking of a pastoral track when you went to Westminster? Uh, you know, Dave, that, that the way you're asking the question assumes a lot more uh, self-awareness in a 25-year-old. So, uh, I went there because I was really excited about God and Scripture, and uh, it was I was less than a year old as a Christian. Uh, the man who led me to Christ was a student, so that combination of personal f factors and just profound excitement about scripture, about who Jesus is, about the profound life rearranging implications of the gospel and the word of God. Uh, it, that was really why I went without much of a sense of where it would lead, but uh, uh, it led into counseling ministry as a particular focus. And, and part of the work of Providence in your life is that you're now training pastors to be counselors um, and that's part of the ministry that you have and and so why don't you talk about that a little bit you know when you go to train a man who's in pastoral ministry or is aiming to be in pastoral ministry and wants to be an effective counselor you know what does the basic training look like and what what books do you recommend what what activities do you encourage him to participate in just just give us some thoughts about that yeah, that's a big question, uh, so my answer will be just one slice of it. Uh, I think the starting point has got to be a vision. Uh, there's, on the whole, I would say there's a pretty minimal vision of the way that what gets called counseling, the biblical Christian form of that should be one of the core ministries in every ministry one of the core ministries of every local church. And simply because what we mean by counseling is ultimately just Ephesians 4.29. It's that in the way we talk with people, 
that our words count. They aren't empty, vapid. They aren't harmful. They aren't false. Our words are true. They're constructive. They're timely. They're relevant. They give grace to those who hear. And that's just a very high-scale, 30,000-foot view of what should be meant by counseling. So every conversation has the potential to be constructive in another person's life. And I do think that for a lot of guys going into pastoral ministry, they get this notion that the essence of ministry is preaching. And I am a huge fan of preaching. I mean, public ministry of the Word is one of the ways the Holy Spirit powerfully works and it's so efficient and God speaks to every heart you know and there might be a thousand people or 50 or present every person can be touched by public ministry at the same time it is actually in the conversations that happen whether formal or informal where you you see the cash value and are people wise do people have the tongue of the wise are people able to encourage the faint-hearted are people able to challenge the unruly? Are people able to speak words of life that uh, restore with a word him who is weary? So that that sense that ministry is more than just preaching, ministry of the word, it's, it's also our conversations. And in fact, in a certain sense, our conversations are the proof of whether something really lives, not just in our head and when we're delivering a scripted message, but does it live within how we speak with people? Does it live within how we understand our own lives and how we make a prayer request and how we respond to someone who's, who's heartbroken or struggling with a sin? Um, I've been really struck biblically that when you look at the balance sheet of Jesus' ministry in the Gospels, it is hugely conversational. Now, it doesn't look like what our culture thinks of as, quote, counseling. But then neither do Jesus' talks look like what we think of as preaching. So both our preaching philosophy and our counseling philosophy, in a sense, are adaptations, applications of what we witness in Scripture. And Jesus is a conversational genius. He has an ability to go right to the human heart. He has an ability to draw people out. He listens well. He's perceptive. Uh, His ministry, he is doing ministry, whether he's talking one-on-one, or he's talking to a, a thousand people. And uh, that's the key. And then, you know, I think once you catch the vision, then you're able to think about the, the, the more specific question you posed. Uh, books to read, courses of study. Uh, obviously, I'm a fan of what we do here uh, out of CCEF in terms of uh, the Journal of Biblical Counseling and books by my colleagues, you know, Ed Welch, Mike Emlett, Winston Smith, and others. Uh, the program we have at Westminster, you know, I believe in, uh, but there are other places as well. There, uh, biblical counseling, I think particularly over the last 20 years has really flourished. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of great places that one can, can get information and some training and just start to think through, how do I do this better? How do I, how do my conversations count so that my words don't fall to the ground or I'm just groping around in the dark, don't really know what to say or or just turn a conversation into a private preaching event. Um, how do you really interact scripture? How do you converse scripture uh, in a way that's really helpful to other people? I know that part of your vision is to see counseling restored to the church. And as you're talking right now, you're describing how that begins in just the rhythm of life in conversation and relationship. Uh, to, to what extent do you want to see every pastor 
armed and equipped and effectively counseling? In other words, is it is it the call of every pastor? Should every pastor view his role as not simply being in relationship with people and counseling in a conversational manner, but that he's spending time each week sitting across from people, seeking to help them through the more weighty matters of their life? Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a, that's a big question also. Uh, it's hard to prescribe a one size fits all, obviously, because giftings are different, context is different, size of church, there's a lot of variables that go into into how a particular minister is gonna answer that question. But one of the rules of thumb I like to, to use is to say every, every preacher should spend at least some time each week across from someone who's struggling. There's nothing like it to make your words have to live, to take it out of theory and in, out of theory that you might've said on Sunday morning and what does this actually look like? How does it translate? Where do people struggle? When, I, when they hear a teaching, what do they make of it? Where do they run astray? Where do they exaggerate or they miss the point? Or There's nothing like talking to people about real stuff to make your preaching come to life. And one of the inducements I, I say uh, to, to would-be preachers is, you know, if you counsel, you are never gonna lack for helpful application and illustration. A lot of times applications are kind of attack on and illustration can be kind of fake and artificial. Boy, if you're interacting with people, you know how life works, you know where people struggle, you know that you know that there's a lot that goes on in the car on the way to church. <laughs> you know. You know that that family that's sitting there, they might have had a tiff with the teenager, or the husband and wife haven't been communicating very well, or he was just on pornography last night, or you're not you're aware of those things because you're actually talking with people about their struggles. And it's just, there's a, there's a, and I could talk the other end as well. I think people who just counsel often miss the, the big picture, the hope, the, the glory of the message, the significance of the proclamatory part of ministry. And that there's a really nice, and ideally there's a really nice interplay between public teaching kinds of opportunities and the more personal conversational opportunities. Well, I, I've seen that just in my own life over the past few years, I've occupied two different roles. One of them was more on the denominational level where most of my sit downs were with leaders that were dealing with different kinds of problems. And it would be very, it would be much more unusual for me to sit down with somebody in the church. Whereas now I'm in a role where I'm, I'm much more active in counseling folks from the church. And I'm just experiencing a richness in in application and a ready ability to connect dots between what I want to say and how it's going to land on the folks in the church. I mean, it, you know, even as I say it, it seems it seems so simple, but uh, I've, I have a fresh illustration of it just in my own journey. Yeah, I mean, the way you put that was really nicely put. You said it better than I did. So, uh, yeah, well, well put. It, uh, you, stuff's able to land. You connect dots. You something a question you might not have even had or you know you say something or you read a bible passage and it just pops for you in a certain way and you don't realize it's not popping that way for everybody you know they may be getting uh, it, it may be completely lifeless for them and what a privilege to bring the word to life on a personal basis as well as in public ministry 
from the public, from the pulpit or from other teaching opportunities. Now, David, you, you've just taken over a role at CCEF. You're the executive director. And uh, that's something that you never expected. Had somebody spoken to you a few years ago and said, hey, what do you think the next few years are going to hold for you? Um, this role would have never been in you, on your grid. How many amens do I need to say to that? David? Yeah, I, I understand. But <laughs> let's, you know, I think, I think one of the things that's so curious about this season of life for you is that you're being called upon to fill a role that you never expected. And there's a lot of, a lot of guys that find themselves in the same place. So how would you counsel people that are facing the prospect of filling a role that, they, that seems necessary but they never expected to fill. Yeah. Well, again, take these. I've been in this position for 11 months, so uh, take it as big learning curve still. But uh, I think one of the things that has been really crucial for me has been an awareness that ran very deep throughout my entire Christian life. Uh, starting with conversion, I, I, there was no predictor of that. I didn't want to be a Christian. I didn't like Christianity. Um, and God, in His amazing intervening, pursuing mercy, uh, captured me for Himself. I have had a sense uh, throughout my Christian life that our lives are a holy experiment in the hands of a loving Father who is bringing His glory. And that sense of John 15 that there's a vine dresser at work, there's a, a vine in whom we abide, there's a Holy Spirit who's the kind of sap of the vine. And that God's at work, and the so here's a whole new challenge in terms of a role I never imagined, but this is what He's called me to. So you know, I love that old Augustine saying, you know, Lord, give what you command and command what you will. If if you're going to call me to do this, I need your help. Help me. Did you and find then, that, uh, David? Did you find that faith was something? that preceded you taking the role or was taking the role just a, a step of faith toward God believing that he would meet you as you kind of you know stepped out of the boat onto the water yes um it's hard you know it's, it's hard to say what came first I had less than 48 hours notice so one of the ways I've thought about it reflected on it is I've never experienced anything quite so dramatic in my life where duty and desire met where faith and obedience met there's something I knew I had to do. It's not something I'd planned on, anticipated, wanted, and it needed to happen. And I needed grace. And I and I would say that the biggest preparation was having years of needing God's mercy and grace and help in other parts of life. And so, okay, here's a new experiment. Here's something new the vine dresser's doing. So, Lord, help me. And that in that, then a humility to. To, to recognize how dependent I am on other people, how much being in a leadership position is dependent on and linked to the faith and obedience of other people with different gifts, the willingness to seek help candidly from both God and from others, uh, the willingness to be candid, candidly aware of my own uh, fallibility and thus the need to to be a good listener, to ask a lot of questions. I think, I think probably one of the things that was biggest was a realization that that leadership is, in, a, in its essence, is simply one of the forms of wisely loving. 
And so it's not as though it's like you need to become General Patton, you know? It's, no, you need to become in some manner like Jesus and actually care for other people and bear their burdens as your own and look for how they can flourish and be willing to to welcome them and say the gracious word and say the hard word if it's needed, but say it in a gracious way. Um, willingness to make decisions. Uh, those, those things are all part of loving and uh, that's been very freeing and humbling at the same time. So, well, One of the things I love about this chapter in your story right now is that it was not necessarily something that you, well, it wasn't something you aspired to at all, and yet God was undoubtedly preparing you over the years. Um, it wasn't something that when you, you first heard it, you thought, wow, well, this makes sense. It came completely out of the blue, and yet you saw it as an opportunity to serve, and the multitude of counselors around you were saying yes and amen. So there was that affirmation from the community, and uh, and and you stepped out and in and pleasing God. And I think a lot of times, you know, guys want their sense of call to ministry or whatever it may be to be something that's just some some slam dunk. Uh, self-evident thing that they just know they've been prepared for along the way and uh, and yet oftentimes God will surprise us he'll back us into things it'll come sure. in ways that we we don't expect whatsoever and that's that's kind of your, your and, story yes and I think you could you could keep talking along that same trajectory that if at the core of our faith is our profound awareness of the need for a redeemer outside of ourselves, for a power outside of ourselves, for a voice outside of ourselves, that we would be dependent upon him. And so in that sense, to be put out of one's comfort zone is actually a huge plus. And the uh, it's also been encouraging to me to reflect on how many people in church history did not plan on being what they had to be. There was a need. and. Part of calling is not just some magical, mystical, you're, you're super gifted and hey, this is what you aspire to, so go do it. It's, there's a need. And so who's gonna meet this need? There's an objectivity to calling. And since it is a call to love and serve the welfare of others and to serve the glory of Christ, if I'm called to do something, well then like, like Lord, give me grace to step it up and do it. And um, yeah. And I know you, you you love nuances, and and there's a tension in here in that uh, in that the the need itself does not necessarily become the call, but the right. need indicates that there's something some important work from God for somebody to do there, and that's where I think the the community around us can be so helpful to say, yeah, you're the guy, and this is the time. Sure. And we're with you and we'll back you and we'll cover for your shortcomings and so forth. And you know, it's another thing that was really interesting, David, that though though I had no particular sense of any trajectory leading to leadership of people, one of the things I realized in retrospect is that though there wasn't any direct leadership of people present uh, or aspiration to do that, yet I had been called to take leadership in lots of ways, to be decisive in lots of ways. Uh, if I'm writing an article, I have to decide what I'm going to say. If I'm giving a talk or conducting a class, there is a kind of leadership and decision-making and care for those who will be readers or care for students who are present uh, 
editorial decisions, you know, thumbs up or thumbs down. And it was interesting to see how God took things that I would I would not have thought of these as generalizable trajectories or, or skills and to realize that, that a willingness to be humbly decisive was a very important part of leadership. And in one sense, God had been preparing me my whole life to do some of the things that were called for. Now, I, I know, David, you've been, uh, you know, we're talking about leadership here and you've spent many years teaching and, and training leaders, particularly men that feel called to pastoral ministry. Um, in your work and in your teaching at Westminster, for instance, in addition to your work at CCEF, I, I'm just curious, since you've been doing this for at least two or three decades, you know, what what seems to distinguish the guys who who go on and do well in ministry versus the guys that just flame out? Uh, you know, you're asking a big question. I'll, I'll give a bit of a generalization. Uh, if I had to pick one part of an answer to what you've, you've asked, you've posed there, I would say that the decisive factor, bar none, is whether you're living what you say. And you're living what you talk about. You're living what you say, but you believe. And now part of what we believe and say is that God is a merciful God who, who, whom we can seek in our weaknesses and failures and sins. And so it's not as though that what distinguishes the flame outs from the flourishing is perfection by no means. In many ways, there's a dynamic where you're living with integrity as a Christian that you become more aware of your weaknesses, more aware of your need for grace, less self-confident, more confident that there's a shepherd who is merciful, who looks out for you and for those you seek to serve. So that, that set, that integrity versus starting to just play a role or you know, just wanting to listen to yourself talk or thinking that you're somebody, uh, or called, you know, developing a double life, or, 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 or. I think they all boil down, becoming too busy to pay attention to the janitor and, or the struggler in the back pew. Uh, those kinds of things all boil down to whether we are walking increasingly in the image of Jesus, who is a merciful redeemer, or whether we are somehow getting puffed up with the idea of a role, and the role is being detached from the man, who at the end of the day is just one more sheep who needs a shepherd, a great shepherd. I think there might be some folks listening, David, that that are, are thinking, you know, rarely do I stand up and preach and feel as if I'm the embodiment of, of what I'm about to say, that there's, there's always a gap between, you know, what I preach and, and who I am. And I know that's not what you're saying. You're it's talking not. about the integrity of our example and uh, and and continuity between what we what we say and do, but but I, I, because you are so good at counseling and so effective at dropping into these kinds of specifics, counsel that man right now that might feel condemned or or, or struggling with what should he do because he feels like he should be a, a better example of everything he teaches. Yeah. Yeah, that, no, I'm glad you've you've come back with that question. It, uh, I would actually say that it, that the idea of being the example is second, and what's primary is the integrity. Integrity is a personal quality. 
So I can't think how many times over the years where before I've had to stand up to preach or teach or before I walk into a room and know that I have to talk with a couple whose marriage is in deep trouble where I, I profoundly feel within myself, who am I to be doing this? How can I do this? Um, I've, I've been in churches where I had to stand up and preach in five minutes and we're worshiping and I'm just looking around and just seeing godly people who love the Lord with a pure and simple heart from all I can see, they're worshiping wholeheartedly and looking at my own difficulty with uh, worshiping with a whole heart. And it's like, well, Lord, who am I? Uh, why am I even a Christian? <laughs> you know. Uh, and yet to be able to then say in that, that go next to, but Lord, who have I in heaven but you? And if you've called me to do this, you must help me to do it to the best of my ability. And of course, there's going to be a gap. And it's actually one of the privileges of ministry, whether it's preaching or counseling, that God would take hold of your awareness of the gap and use that as a dynamic that drives you to love your wife better, to pursue him more earnestly, to live up to the words that just came out of your mouth, to be humbled with the need for more grace. So that's really good, David. You know, so the integrity comes in recognizing there is a gap, humbling oneself before the gap, and experiencing fellowship with God over that, and even even fellowship with one another over that. Yeah, yeah. So we're talking about counseling a bit, David, and we're talking about how you might counsel men. But I wanted to. I wanted to go out a little broader and and just talk about some things that you might be seeing in the world of counseling right now as it relates to pastors. What 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 are the trends that are taking place that if you were if you were standing in front of a hundred pastors right now, you would want to say, guys, make sure you're tracking this trend. What what should the church be tracking right now? Yes. Uh and again, I'll put the caveat. I mean, you know, my opinion of our culture is, is not normative. We all take our best crack at it. I would say as I look at the counseling world, I see two trends that uh, are dominant currently and no doubt 10 years from now or five, but it'll be different trends. So that's always the trend issue. Uh, they, they come and go. But the two trends I see are one is radical biologization of human experience. So everything is your DNA, your brain, uh, your, your genetics, your, uh, and the fact is, as Christians, there's a, we're, there's a flood of the brain is it, or hormones are it. Uh, the fact is that's, that's not true. We are embodied, our biology matters, it's hugely significant, uh, both for good in terms of, of of uh, ways our body can be a, provide real strengths and for hardship, ways our body provides weaknesses. Um, but no human being that articulates the theory of the biological basis at the core of all human life ever, it even lives that. So biologization is just one extreme on the pendulum of the nature-nurture debate, which our culture is always swinging between. You know, it's either your body or it's your upbringing and surroundings. Uh, there's not too many op other options if you don't have an active view of the active human heart. And uh, 
because the culture cannot take hold of the active human heart in the way that scripture portrays that, it's always lurching between biology and social experience, and we are in a biology period. Second thing that I would say uh, worth being aware of is that in psychotherapy, if that's in the theoretical level, then the second one is in the psychotherapy level. Uh, the kind of education I had uh, back in the 60s, 70s, people really believed their models of psychology, their secular models. Uh, models are out, and there's a kind of pragmatic, evidence-based, almost trying to make, make counseling method a science as if you do this kind of intervention with this kind of person and this kind of problem and that's going to solve it and uh, that can sound very persuasive like the biology in a culture that makes science its god but what both of those miss is the problems at the heart of any secular worldview they're equally secular as as the modern psychologies have been since their founding and they don't understand people they don't understand that we are we are people whose loves, hates, fears, where we take refuge, or what we set our hope in, the structure of our functional belief system, 20 other ways you could come at that, is always qualified vis-a-vis -vis the living God. Uh, that we, in some way or other, attach ourselves, our fundamental loyalties, to the one true and living God who is our creator, sustainer, judge, savior, etc or we attach ourselves somewhere else. And so the trends in the world of counseling, until they ever anchor in that core worldview commitment that then allows you to make sense of pragmatic data, allows you to make sense of biology, they're always gonna be skewing. And the church just needs to not lose confidence that the biblical view of the human heart is in fact what a human being is. And so the trend of this decade or the next decade, or the last decade, those are going to come and go. They're pretty predictable uh, on the larger scale. And hold fast. Uh, be interested, be curious, listen, learn, but don't get off your center. It seems like w one of the ways that the pragmatism can work out for, for guys in pastoral ministry is that there can be a temptation to oversimplify the diagnostics and to reduce them down to either sin or righteousness. You know, Luther said we're simultaneously saint and sinner, and uh, that can become a paradigm for interpreting behavior. And, uh, and I think pastors can be prone to that because they, they live busy lives and, and, and beginning to develop models of counseling that create a lot of, that necessitate a lot of training and a lot of time you know, there just isn't the time to do that and so we gravitate towards what can at times be overly simplistic diagnostics and so i'm wondering how david i want you to interact with this a little bit how how can a pastor avoid the mistake of of classifying behavior as either exclusively sin or righteousness and and instead of that just take into account the whole person yeah uh, yeah one of the ways I've thought about the question you're posing is it's there's a temptation to view the essence of the pastoral role as I need a, to adjudicate and classify which is what you're pointing to you know okay is this 
what is this in a way that like boom now we've decided to find it so if that if that's sin then here's how you need to repent and so forth if that's righteous everything's cool uh, instead of saying what I think Luther actually meant uh, we are simultaneously saints and sinners we're mixed cases there are complexities and and I'd actually throw in a third uh, word in there we're saints sinners and sufferers uh, that we so there's uh, you think of someone where you know uh, you've got a, a, a husband that just had a temper a volatile temper reamed out his family like what do you make of that well it's clearly sin um, on the other hand the remorse he feels can, is saintliness and there may be things building up in his life pressure cooker things at work finance health things his wife is doing or his kids are doing where there's sufferings in his life so I can't fully understand that I mean I can't ever fully understand anything you know because the world is always more complicated than our feeble minds can wrap around God alone understands all things human heart is deceptive beyond finding out but I can simultaneously understand that man as, as kind of embedded in a situation that has sufferings as a sinner who has just done some really destructive things in how he's talked to his family and as a saint who actually wants to grow and uh, so the, the difference between what you might call the adjudicatory role which does come in when you get into the things like church discipline or you're doing an ethical discussion but that's different from what is the usual part of pastoral process where you're trying to step into a person's life have a sense of where this person in the midst of their complexity saint sinner sufferer what's going to be the next constructive step in this person's life walk and you can't really predict it i mean we know the guy that needs to stop throwing tantrums but it may be that part of the next step is him just learning to pray about how to cast his cares on god because he puts himself in a pressure cooker and he never goes to the lord with the sufferings in his life there may be a, a part where it's in someone else it's he needs to learn that God is merciful and his anger is very unmerciful and God is merciful to his anger and maybe that's a season where grasping Christ's mercy is next maybe what's next is he needs to learn to candidly ask forgiveness not make excuses when he uh, in the way he talks about what he's done wrong uh, and there could be 20 other next steps so it's this I, I think it someone who when people tend to think in systematic theological and ethical terms you're tempted to live in a black and white world and the world is ultimately black and white in the mind of God uh, but in the way we experience it we're continually sorting through mixed cases and complexities and trying to make a, a judgment call on and you know how do we help this person how do we help ourselves move in the direction of the light and what's the next step because your next step may be different from my next step and what's the meaningful next step in the direction of Christ and Christ's glory and my growth in grace uh, nobody's going to hand you as a pastor a prescription card on that in a person that you're speaking with and so that really does invite you to to not only not not just have an adjudicatory mindset but 
to not have some pat answer that you just kind of slap onto every every case um, that has a, yeah, a certain similarity topically. We're going to wrap up, David, in just a few minutes, but I, I really like that idea of not just saint, sinner, but sufferer, because I think part of what the suffering side does is it brings into play the whole area of human weakness. You know, the idea that we're, you know, we're not God, we're, we're finite, we, we do dumb things, we make mistakes, we have inherent uh, physical problems that we have to deal with and they, they cause us to fall short at times. And uh, that's not a category that often finds its way into the diagnostics either. And I think that w would more, it would happen more if suffering was a more robust category. Why don't you just, why don't you riff for a few minutes on this idea of weakness, David, and, and, and plug that into the thoughts you had on suffering. Sure. Yeah, you know, it's one of the, uh, um, I'm glad you restricted me to a few minutes, Dave, because we can talk for hours here on this one. Uh, let me preface it this way. It's, it's rare that one remembers a specific line from a sermon that you heard almost 40 years ago. But I remember a line from a sermon I heard in the mid-70s from Romans 8, where, it's, where Paul says, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. And I remember the, the, the preacher saying, isn't this interesting? It's not weaknesses. It's not as though there's a list, like here's the 11 weaknesses in your life. It's weakness as a comprehensive description of the human condition. And that comprehensive description includes our sinfulness, our willfulness, our as well as our blind sins. It includes our mortality. It includes our suffering. It includes the limitations of our ignorance. It includes the, the, the ways that our particular cultural setting, our upbringing, our temperament, they all, they all limit our gaze. You, you mentioned finitude. You know, we're all finite in, in lots of different ways. And, um, there's just things we don't see. And so that notion of weakness as a comprehensive description of our need for Christ, then it really makes it pop, for example, why in the Psalms, there's a whole chunk of Psalms that are very candidly repentant for direct identifiable sin, uh, deep sense of personal guilt, turning to a God of mercy. And then there's a whole bunch of other Psalms that are wrestling with a sense of affliction and trouble and I don't this doesn't make sense to me and, and people are out to get me and it hurts and I'm afraid of dying and I wish I could get out of this and you are my refuge and I need you so that that notion of weakness the notion of suffering the fact that the the that though our faith you might say in its ultimate logical core is has there the, the substitutionary atoning death of Christ bearing the death penalty of sinners that core logic does not mean that 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 issue itself is always front and center in any particular pastoral moment it's sometimes front and center other times it's more deep structure uh, of, of the way you approach someone pastorally but what's front and center is this sinner who was bought by the blood of Christ is really hurting right now. And they're confused and they have limited 
intellectual abilities and their church setting has biased them to think about the Christian life in certain ways that are pretty distorted, how can I help them grow? How can I help them seek and find God in the midst of uh, where there's a lot of confusion swirling and it's not all high-handed sin by any means? That's at least a start. We could obviously unpack a lot of other factors in that. Oh, I think, David, I could, I could sit all day and listen to you talk about this stuff. I, I, love, I love hearing the way you describe God's activity in the life of a, of a sinner and a sufferer. And I'm very grateful, David, for your time today, but, but even more grateful, actually, for your, your leadership over CCEF. So, so thanks for, so much for joining us today. You are very welcome, Dave. Blessings. Thank you for listening to the Am I Called podcast, which was brought to you today by Four Oaks Community Church in Tallahassee, Florida. For more articles, interviews, and resources on calling and pastoral ministry, visit amicalled.com.